Good morning. We're going to be looking this morning at our series in 1 Thessalonians. And the title of today's message is Good News to Relieve an Apostle's Mind. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verses 5 through 10. And I've gone back and forth on the key phrase. And so the key phrase could be good news, or the key phrase could be not in vain. Okay? So I'd like you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. And Paul writes, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for the goodness and the riches of your word. I pray, God, you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts and our minds to see the wonderful things that are in your word, things that have been there all along. But Lord, help us to see them with the illumination of the Holy Spirit so that we might be doers of your word and not hearers only. And Lord, may the work of of this dear Apostle Paul as it relates to us in our lives. May it not be in vain. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In review, the Apostle Paul had a pastor's heart. We see this in the fact that a pastor's heart is a heart that has affection for his people, and Paul certainly had that. A pastor's heart is a heart that is unselfish toward his people, willing to give his very best for their spiritual benefit. And we see that in the life of Paul. We see a pastor's heart is a heart that has compassion for the trouble his people are going through, and so is willing to suffer with them as they go through the trials of their faith. And again, we see that the Apostle Paul displayed this as well. And so Paul had clearly a pastor's heart. But this is only part of what moved Paul to do what he did for the early churches. Today we're going to be looking at the fact that the Apostle Paul also had an apostle's mind. Okay, now what is the difference between a pastor and an apostle? Well, a pastor is responsible for the individual care of the individual believers within the flock. 
His focus is on individuals and families, marriages, uh, relationships between the members of the local church. And so a pastor's focus is on the local church. Whereas an apostle's focus, because of the Great Commission and because of the Apostolic Commission, which was uniquely given to the Twelve and then later to the Apostle Paul uh, as Jesus appeared to him, and commissioned him to go to the Gentiles as an apostle to the Gentiles, we see that these men, these apostles, and other associates with them, Timothy, for instance, and Silas, Barnabas, these men had responsibility beyond the local church, responsibility for building up the body of Christ. And and we see historically that many of the apostles focused their attention on entire continents and were determined not just to plant the church in one place or another, but to have local churches scattered throughout a region. And we see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. He is preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in town after town throughout the Mediterranean area. And then later, he says, when, it, when he says, there's no more place for me here you know, in this area, I want to go to Spain. <laughs> he says, I want to I want to go get some of that good Spanish food, you know, and, uh, and reach some people there with the gospel. And so there's a clear difference between an apostle and a pastor. And what we see in this passage here today is an, ap- an apostle's mind. He's, he's thinking strategically, and he has this concern. And uh, we need to be careful that we don't read too much into this, but we want to be able to notice that he's concerned that he's not wasting his time. He's got a big job to do. He's got a whole world out there that needs to hear the gospel. And he doesn't want to waste time in a situation in which his work is in vain and the people are not believing and they're not standing fast and they're not being the church that they need to be in order for his work to actually be successful and completed. It's not that he doesn't care about their individual souls. We've already seen that. He does. But he also is concerned about the future of the body of Christ in the world. Have we planted the seed well enough in the right soil so that it will go on to bear fruit, not just in one generation, but in generations to come? And so, we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5, For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. I want to make an observation here, that there is some motivational value, whether it's a pastor or in this case, an apostle, saying to somebody, please don't waste my time. Because there are others who need to hear this message. And if you're not receiving it and rejoicing in it, then I'm going to shake the dust off my feet and I'm going to keep moving down the road until I find someone who is receptive. So remember, that was part of Jesus' commission. If they don't receive you in this town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them 
and keep moving because there will be a town somewhere down the road that will receive the gospel as they should. And so Paul is not hesitating to say to these uh, Thessalonian new believers, I'm very concerned that my labor among you may have been in vain. Now, Paul knew that the faith of every new, quote, convert could not be known to be a truly saving faith until that faith had passed through the normal tests of faith explained by Jesus in his parable of the sower that is found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 22. Now, I don't mean to just go off on a rabbit. This is not a rabbit trail, okay? This is the basis upon which Paul is living with this concern about whether or not their faith is a truly saving faith that's going to be able to endure the trials and go the distance. As an apostle, Paul was deeply concerned that his new converts might fail to pass what he knew would be inevitable challenges to their faith. Now, he's referred to these already in the first two chapters of this letter, but now he's, he's uh, obviously thinking about this very, very deeply. Paul must have been well aware of the parables of Jesus. Okay. We have to assume that he's, he's not running around the Mediterranean area without the Gospels. Okay? He's got some kind of, whether it's oral tradition at this point, or whether it's actual written scripture, he has to have, we know that Luke traveled with him. And so when Luke starts to talk about us going here and there, we know that the author of the Gospel of Luke is now with the Apostle Paul. And I think I see some evidence of him changing his strategy in light of some things that are in the Gospel of Luke. But we won't go there for now. But here we are in Matthew chapter 13 and verses 3 through 9. Now, uh, we begin with this statement. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But then when the sun was up and they were scorched, and, be, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus is teaching the people in parables. And we have to wonder, why does he do that? Why not just speak clearly to everyone? And the disciples at this time wanted to know as well. And so they came to him afterward and they asked, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus' answer was, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. 
Now I want you to notice there, we're referring here to the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. For whoever has to him will be given, and he, who, he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So Jesus is setting the stage for what these very disciples, disciples among these are going to become the apostles, right? And so these disciples, some soon to be apostles, are going to be doing things later, after Jesus has died and been buried and then risen from the dead, these very disciples are going to be taking the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. And Jesus is setting the stage for that by using all these parables. Now, have you ever noticed how large the crowds are that come to Christ in the area around Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost? We're talking about 3,000 here, you know, 2,000 there, 5,000 here. Where are all these people coming from? Why are they all getting saved? Because they have been cultivated by Jesus himself in the teaching of his parables and the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount and the, and the other sermons that he gave. The, the, the whole area around Jerusalem is, is like a field that has been sown and sown and sown with the gospel seed, and now the harvest has come and the bumper crops are amazing. But the farther away you get from Jerusalem, the smaller the response is. Because in those areas, the ground has not been prepared. They're still dealing with a level of paganism and superstition and, and all kinds of uh, cultural ob obstacles. And so we see a few here and a few there coming to Christ and forming a small church like the church in Thessalonica. Not thousands, but maybe dozens. <laughs> Hundreds maybe, but not thousands. And so these, these disciples are being prepared for the work they're going to do after Jesus has arisen from the dead and who is ascended into heaven. And so let's take a look at what Jesus had to say. Because, by the way, he tells us in the Gospel of Mark, if you can't understand this parable you won't understand any of the parables. Isn't that interesting? It says, if you can't understand this one, the others won't make any sense to you at all. So, Jesus says, therefore hear the parable of the sower, picking up now in verse 19. <clears throat> when anyone hears, do I have water under here? Yes, I do. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, now notice there, word of the kingdom. And does not understand it. Then the wicked one, that's Satan, comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. Now, Satan's first strategy, when you're out there sharing the gospel with somebody, his first tactic is going to be to snatch the word of the kingdom away from the hearer before he or she even has time to think it through and believe it. That's the goal. 
distract as quickly as possible and snatch the word away so they don't even remember what it was all about. So this seed never even takes root, okay? And in this situation, the sower's labor has been in vain, we could say. Now, the seed that was sown on stony places, we're told, he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So Satan's next strategy is to stir up tribulation and persecution because of the word. And he does this in order to cause those who are almost believers. Notice it doesn't say here that they're believing. It's just they've received it. They've received it. They've rejoiced in it. It doesn't say yet that they've believed it. And that's important. But those who have almost believed it are going to stumble and decide that it's just not worth it to be a believer. It's too hard, too painful, too expensive. There's too much to lose. And they don't yet understand what there is to gain that would make it worth it. And so this is where the Thessalonians were in Paul's mind before Timothy came back with a good report. Okay? So, at this stage of the process, the Thessalonians could either stand fast in their faith in the face of persecution and tribulation, or they could turn back and all of Paul's labors for them would then be in vain, all be for nothing. Now the seed that is sown among the thorns, we're told, is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So Satan's final strategy here is that when he cannot keep the hearer of the word from believing, <clears throat> he attempts to choke the word in such a way as to make it the one who has heard it more susceptible to the cares of this world and a lust for this world's riches. Now we're going to unpack this a little bit, but the cares of this world are all the pressures of living in a fallen world. Paying the bills, keeping a roof over your head, clothing, food, drink. These are the things that we are concerned about in a fallen world because prosperity is the exception in history. Poverty is the norm. And we sometimes, in our culture, in the United States of America, we don't realize that prosperity, as we experience is a parenthesis. It is an exception to the normal poverty that existed throughout history. And so when we see poverty even in our own country and we say, well, we need to stomp that out. We need to make that all go away. Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. And there are good reasons why that happens. There are things that happen that throw people into financial disaster. You will never have a system that makes it impossible for anyone to be poor unless we just make everybody equally poor. Okay? And that's what socialism and communism are all about. 
Now, the deceitfulness of riches, this is the kind of the, the other end of the spectrum. The cares of this world are dealing with the issues of poverty and difficulty, but the deceitfulness of riches seems to offer a better alternative to God's kingdom provision. He's offering to provide for your daily bread. He's offering to provide for your clothing and your food and so on. But before any of that begins to flow in the direction of the new believer, it would be easy for them, especially if they're already wealthy, like the rich young ruler, it's possible, maybe even likely, that they will choose to stick with this world's riches rather than trust in the promise of God that he'll take care of you if you begin to walk in obedience to him. We'll take a look at that in a moment. So together, these two, both the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, have this ability to choke the word of the kingdom, and that's what it is all the way through this parable. It never stops being the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so it impedes the development of fruit in the believer's life. And then again, the sower's labor is in vain. So, I want to ask the question, could this be why so many in the churches today remain unfruitful? I'm not saying that people are necessarily unsaved. I'm saying they're not getting the benefit of participating in the kingdom of God because they have allowed the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches to choke the word and keep it from bearing the kind of fruit that God intended it to bear in their lives. And so in Matthew 13 and verse 22, we see this, he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Now, if the word of the kingdom is being choked by the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, it could explain why, especially in the Western nations, the Western civilization today, we see so little fruit coming out of the lives of those who claim to be Christians. They identify themselves as Christians, and yet we see so little fruit. Now there could be, and I want to make always make this clear there could be those who are simply nominal christians they're not born again they're not alive in christ and so of course they're not going to bear fruit but there could also be others like myself <laughs> and like you and all of you who are believers we've trusted in christ we have been born again but i can tell you i've had high points in my life where i was bearing fruit and I've had other times when I wasn't bearing as much fruit. And it's not because the gospel has changed, it's because the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches begin to choke the word. Now, if that's so, what would be the remedy? How do we shake ourselves and the churches at large uh, out of this situation of being choked okay it reminds me of the the cartoon of the frog you know with his hands around the neck of a blue heron <laughs> and uh, 
And that heron is determined to swallow that frog, and that frog is determined that you are not going to swallow me. Okay. So what's, what is the remedy? Is it just to choke the heron? Well, I think we need to go back to the basics, back to the beginning. This is what Jesus announced. The first thing out of his mouth when he began his ministry in the Gospels is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's significant. Jesus knew what his mission was all about. He knew from the beginning, from the story of his birth, that he is destined to be the, the one who takes the throne of David and whose kingdom there will be no end. And now Jesus is announcing that that kingdom is at hand. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, when when asked to teach his disciples how to pray, he includes this in that short prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and then give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say our daily wealth. It doesn't say our daily Cadillac, you know. Uh, as the, some of the faith teachers would have us believe, but rather to give us this day our daily bread. And then later in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so it would be that the, this is the question, is the preaching of the gospel supposed to include instruction concerning the kingdom of God? Is that intended to be a part of the initial presentation? In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, we read, and Jesus presented himself alive, speaking about the kingdom of God. This is after his resurrection. In Acts 8, 12, and they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God. In Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In Acts 19, verse 8, persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 20, 25, I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. In Acts 28, the last chapter of the book of Acts, a lot of water under the bridge by this time. And we find that Paul is still expounding to them and testifying to the kingdom of God. And in Acts 28, the last verse of the Bible, uh, of the a book of Acts, Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the gospel concerning Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God may be the only effective antidote to the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. Without this understanding of what the kingdom is and how it works, the sower's labor would often prove to be in vain. And that's what I think is going on here. God the Father is determined to give his children the kingdom of God. We read that in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But how does God do this? How does God get us into and get us participating in the kingdom of God? 
Well, the answer is found in the very next verse, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 33. And it begins with this, sell what you have and give alms. Now, alms here has to do with responding to the needs of others. It's not just giving to somebody on the street. Giving alms is giving to anyone that you recognize has a need and you have the opportunity to meet that need. And so he's saying, sell what you have and give alms. And in doing so, you provide yourselves with money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God is inviting us to participate in this kingdom, His kingdom, and we do so by letting go of what we have and sharing it with others who have needs with the understanding that the same thing works in our direction any need that we will have in the future, God will arrange for that need to be met so that we never lack the things that are necessary. Okay? We are not talking about riches and wealth. We are talking about daily bread, clothing, food. Right? I want to make that really clear because otherwise we could go off into the ditch of uh, some kind of Christian materialism and a health and wealth gospel, which is a heresy. It's a false doctrine. Now, we get to participate in this kingdom. I would go so far as to say we don't have to participate in this kingdom in order to be saved. We can be born again and in a very real sense living like orphans in our own home living like, like we don't have resources to draw upon, like there is no Father in heaven who knows what we need and who responds even before we ask. We can live like that. As born-again, people are doing it all the time. I've done it. I've lived and acted like I had no Father in heaven, and then I suddenly wake up and realize, hey, wait a minute. Why am I going through this like this? Why am I so worried? Why am I anxious? My Heavenly Father knows I have need of all these things, and He's already promised me that I'll have whatever I need, so I'm just going to trust Him. I'm not going to worry. I'm going to just keep doing what's right, try to stay in a right relationship with everyone around me and everything around me, and just trust God that He's got it all under control. You see where we're going with this? So we get to participate in God's kingdom toward others by sharing what we have with them in their need while God arranges to meet our own needs through the generosity of others. Now this happens in various ways, but in, in my understanding of the bigger picture of God's kingdom and throughout the seasons of our lives, when we as parents invest heavily in our children not just in their spiritual lives and their moral character, but also in their ability to be useful and to be able to prosper in their careers someday. 
And then they grow up and they move out of the house and they get married and have their own families and have their children. And meanwhile, we're doing our best to keep our heads above water and we're doing okay for quite a while. But eventually we get to that place where we just can't pick that hammer up anymore. So what is God's intended provision for us at that point in time? It's all these kids who love God. They are our social security, not the government. And they show up in various ways, in, in, in ways that we would approve of, in order to make sure that mom and dad are comfortable in their sunset years and that they don't have to worry about how to keep the light on. They don't have to eat cat food. I'm serious. That happens. You know, they're not, this is God's provision for us. You say, you know, over here, I'm nursing babies and going through the stress of raising all these little kids, you know, and life is hard. But we're like a farmer, in a sense, that's laboring in hope that these same kids someday are going to be here for us as part of God's plan. And it's required of them to honor their parents and to not say, oh, it's all Corbin, it's dedicated to God, so I can't help you out, Mom. You know, Jesus called those religious leaders hypocrites. They had thwarted the purposes of God with their traditions. God intended for the children to take care of their parents in their old age and not to assume that somebody else would take care of that. And so, what does it look like? What dough it looked like? That's why I need my wife to be my typo finder. I didn't show her this. She didn't see it. Okay. Sorry, honey. Okay. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Very controversial passage. I'm not going to go here for long, but I just want to read it to you and say to you, this is what it looks like when people hear the word of the kingdom and begin to immediately put it into practice. And then those who gladly received his word, that's Peter preaching on the second chapter of Acts, were baptized. And that day... About 3,000 souls were added to them. We know that whatever teaching they had, it had to be pretty quick and pretty short. But they got it enough to get this. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. The need is the key to the coffers of the body of Christ. Need, not want, but need. And those of us who are mature in Christ should be able to recognize when someone has a need. And then to see that as our opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven by, if need be, selling something. You know, we've got this wonderful thing called the Marketplace on Facebook now. And they say that there's about $7,000, on average, about $7,000 worth of stuff in the average home that you could sell on the Marketplace. (laughs) Think of all the good you could do with that. Getting rid of stuff. Bonnie and I have a joke. We go go to places sometimes, uh, these... uh, thrift stores 
and, and you see people, and it's like they're loading up to get ready for their next garage sale. <laughs> it's like, this is the kind of thing you see in garage sales all the time. My point is that when we have this understanding, and that's, what, that's the word Jesus uses, understanding of the gospel of the kingdom, we will see the needs in the lives of one another is our opportunity to invest in instruments of investment that will never fail us. A money bag in heaven that doesn't have any holes in it. Things don't rust. Moths don't eat holes in the garment. If you want to really protect your stuff, send it to heaven. (laughs) Get it up there. And then it'll be there for you when you get there. The kingdom of God is a system of provision of all that is needed as it is needed. And it's by means of mutual generosity. And so God's kingdom provision flows to us and it flows through us to others by the steady generosity of those who trust God enough to actually obey Jesus Christ as king, and he's only given us one new commandment, and that is that we love one another as he has loved us. Do you see what we're up against here? This kingdom understanding is the fruitful seed. It is the seed that is sown on the ground, the good ground, of fruitfulness. Take a look here. Matthew 13, 23. But he who received the seed on the good ground is one who hears the word, and that again in verse 18 is the word of the kingdom, and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And so we've got this tremendous multiplier effect as those who hear the word of the kingdom and understand it, they go out and they begin to bear wonderful levels of fruit. Sorry. Please turn off your cell phones. Now, the seed that is sown on the good ground is the one who understands the word of the kingdom. And that is why and how he is able to bear good fruit. And the good fruit comes in several ways, several kinds. Even then, the quantity, the quality of the soil in terms of its depth of one's understanding and the level of one's faith and love affects the size of the harvest. You see that? And that harvest is both in terms of spiritual fruit, like the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but it also could be seen in terms of evangelistic success in the gospel harvest. Remember, what does a seed produce in its harvest? Seeds. (laughs) Right? So if, if you plant a grain of wheat and you get a bumper crop, what do you get? Lots of wheat. And every one of those grains of wheat is now going to be bread for the eater and seed for the sower. And so the gospel of the kingdom continues to go out into the world 
as new converts who understand the gospel take that gospel to those around them, and then they take that gospel to the others around them. And that is why Paul is so concerned that his labors in Thessalonica are not in vain. Now at this point, we could have some pushback in your minds. If you know your Bibles, and I suspect you do, then you might be thinking, well, what about Romans chapter 14 and verse 17? Because there we read, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that seem to say that the kingdom is not about this world's stuff? It's not about food. It's not about what we drink. Well, let's take a look at this statement in context because many times these phrases taken out of context can sound like something they're not saying at all. And so Paul is writing in Romans 14, verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Yet if our brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom, for whom Christ died. You know, say, I'm going to have my bacon no matter what you say. Right? That's the attitude Paul's addressing. He says, you shouldn't think like that. Therefore, do not let your good, that's bacon, be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And so we see in the context that this passage is about dietary considerations and not intentionally offending your, your guests or your fellow believers by, by eating things that they find to be offensive. For you to be willing to say, as Paul does, if it would cause my brother to stumble, I'm not going to eat meat for the rest of my life. Now he's, then he goes on to say, have you, have, do you have faith? Well, have it to yourself before God. Blessed is the man who's not condemned in the thing which he allows. So Paul is not trying to tie our hands to the conscience of the weakest believer in the church, but rather saying, don't flaunt your liberty in such a way as to cause that weak brother, and remember, the weak brother is the one who won't eat the meat, don't let that weak brother stumble because of your flaunting your liberty and being so inconsiderate of his conscience. So this passage is not saying that the gospel has nothing to do with our daily bread provision in real life. It is not a rejection of God's kingdom as a means of provision. And so then, the Bible scholars among us would ask, well, what about 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5? Hmm? Hmm? What about that? 1 Timothy 6, 5, Un useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. <laughs> now this is a serious challenge. This passage is clearly warning not to turn the kingdom into a money tree. Not to think that it's a means of getting rich. 
But what does he say in context? Let's take a look. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise than what Paul has been teaching and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil, suspicions, and useless wranglings among men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Paul is saying that the kingdom, is, is Paul saying in this passage that the kingdom has nothing to do with the normal necessities of life? Or is he addressing an attitude that would turn wealth and riches into a problem? Well, let's take a look, because it would seem not, as we read on in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And that is why you will never see a hearse with a trailer. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. What does he say there? With food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Does that remind you of what Jesus said in the gospel? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? How are we going to be clothed? Your Father knows you have need of all these things, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things. What? Food and clothing and drink. It doesn't even mention housing. Now notice what he says next. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And so this passage is a clear warning against the desire to be rich. But it is not a rejection of the Lord's prayer for our daily bread. Okay? And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, when he says that you're to pray for your daily bread, when he tells you that by seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added to you, we're looking at a kingdom that is very much intended to relieve us of the cares of this world. It's a gospel that's intended to relieve us of the deceitfulness of riches and the desire, the greediness, to be rich. Paul, as an apostle, must have understood all of this very well. And so when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, for this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Paul is saying, I had to know 
Which soil are you? Are you the soil on the wayside? Imagine how painful this would be to not know, having been with them for that brief period of time. Are you the stony ground? Are you the thorny ground? Or are you the good soil that is going to bear an abundance of fruit? That's what's on Paul's mind. Has the tempter tempted you away from trusting God's kingdom provision and into distractions of the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches? Was all our labor in vain? Was it all for nothing? That is what's going on in Paul's mind. And he is absolutely determined not to do his life's work in vain. He wants to know. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Galatians 2.2, And I went up by revelation and communicated to them, this is the other apostles, that the, the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul is very concerned not to waste his time with the wrong gospel or by spending a lot of time with people who are not going to be bearing fruit. Galatians 4.11, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. The Galatians were going off into a Gnostic heresy. And Paul is pulling them back with his epistle to the Galatians. And finally in Philippians 2.16, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So for all of Paul's heart of a pastor, which we clearly see in this epistle, we also see he has the mind of an apostle. He's strategic, he's intentional, and he's determined. So remember what the problem is. The problem is that the seed can be sown among thorns, and when that happens, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. So Satan's final strategy, when he cannot keep the hearer of the word from believing, is to choke the word in such a way as to make him more susceptible to the cares of this world and the lust of riches. Without this understanding of the gospel, as the gospel of the kingdom, with God's Lord's prayer provisions. Can we call it that? The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches will choke the word and impede the development of fruit in the believer's life. And so the sower's labor would again be in vain unless the hearer understands and believes the gospel concerning Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. It was only with Timothy's good news that Paul's mind was finally relieved that their faith and their love was real. 
as we read in chapter 3 and verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. The word good news here is the same word that we use for the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul's good news. They are believing. They are standing fast in their faith. Paul receives great comfort even in the midst of his affliction concerning them because of their faith. Now faith was the central issue. Do you really believe? And in Hebrews 11.6 we read, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. That's God. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. What is our reward? It's heaven. It's eternal life. But in this life, it's a life of trials. It's a life of suffering. It's a life of tribulation. But it's also a life of God's fatherly provision. Trusting Him with our future. Knowing that as we walk in the light of His Word and walk in righteous relationship to one another, He's going to watch out for us. We don't have to let the cares of this life choke the Word. We don't have to have our, our attachment to our stuff, our riches, our possessions choke the Word. We can let go of these things knowing that God is there and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If we really believe the truth of the Gospel, it will change everything. And so in closing, this is because Paul lived for the Great Commission. He says now in verse 8, For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. The word stand fast is a military term, stich in the Greek. It refers to a soldier's refusal to retreat in the face of an enemy attack. Paul is saying, I know you're under attack. I know that you are being pressured to bail out and to, take, and to run for it. But I am so pleased to know that you are standing fast. We live if you stand fast in the Lord. And so Paul is saying, my entire purpose in life is fulfilled and my gospel mission is complete if people like you, you Thessalonians, who I have led to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to live and to walk by faith so that they are bearing the fruit of faith and of love that God desires. That is what is good news that relieves the heart and the mind of an apostle. Let's pray.